Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. We're coming to you from the Los, no, not Los Angeles, we're coming to you from the Long Beach Convention Center, where I'm uh, participating in the Cannabis Science Conference. I did a keynote yesterday, which was really unbelievable, and we've run into so many people out here who are of like mind, either clinicians, doctors, researchers, and kind of curious people who've just come out to find out if they could get some extra information so that it'll help them navigate this space as they make decisions for themselves and their family. And today's guest is, you know, a pretty well-known entity in this business. My guest is a registered nurse who specializes in all aspects of medical cannabis care. Her holistic approach to individualized patient care has been the cornerstone of her success as a nurse, educator, entrepreneur, and promoter of health. She's the founding member of the Cannabis Nurses Network, Nurse Heather Manis. Welcome to Let's Be Blowing Montel. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Montel. I'm happy to be here and get blunt with you. There you go. Let's get blunt for sure. Well, look, tell me a little bit about your background before you got into cannabis. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Yeah, so I'm, I was born and raised in New Mexico in the Four Corners area. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a home health nurse working mainly with mental health patients in the okay. home health setting. Mm-hmm. And I realized at that point that a lot of homebound people were actually using cannabis. And um, so I knew that we had a legal program in New Mexico. This is during the legal program. Okay. Yes. And so I I started informing my patients that I knew were using cannabis, that there was a legal pathway so that they could access legal cannabis because they weren't patients at the time. And so I started helping my patients get onto the program so that they could be part of the legal program system. Mm-hmm. And what did, what did you, where did you learn before you even got into cannabis though? Were you not working and were you exposed to like holistic medicine, medicine and healers and things like that? Talk a little bit about your background. Sure. Well. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. So I was born and raised in that Southwestern environment and part of the culture um, where I lived was right on the Navajo reservation. Mm-hmm. Um, I did marry a Navajo man and I had children and okay. I now have a grandson that's oh, being congratulations. raised on the Navajo reservation in the traditional way. Mm-hmm. And so it's, um, I, I, as I grew up, plants were always part of my life, mm-hmm. um, knowing how to go out and harvest plants with respect in the proper way, make medicine for our community. It was just the way that I was raised. Gotcha. Um, and so as a nurse, I really wanted to be part of the medical community. I wanted to learn what they were doing with healing and be able to bring in some of this traditional knowledge that I had to bridge some of those gaps. When did you start transition and become a nurse or start thinking about becoming a nurse? So I had actually experienced... Um, I wasn't going to go here, Montel. You're really good. Um, I had actually experienced a a traumatic event where I was attacked and almost killed by by someone I didn't know. And it left me with debilitating PTSD. Sure. And I was on the pharmaceutical regimen with my doctors for five years. And the medication they had me on left me feeling um, suicidal a lot of the time. And I started to use cannabis in conjunction with my pharmaceutical medicine. And I found that I felt better with the cannabis, but I also wanted to get off of the pharmaceuticals. Gotcha. And it it helped you do that too, did it it not? It did. And it was really a holistic approach of 
really getting back to nature, exercising, going on nature hikes, gardening, using cannabis, eating the right foods, drinking herbal teas, that I did all of that to get off of the pharmaceuticals. And it was after I got off of the pharmaceuticals that I had my mind back. I was out of that fog. Gotcha. And I decided I need to go to school. I want to be a nurse and I want to help people. Because Other people I, feel like your experience, get your experience, right? Get and, their lives back. And and that's what I always said. Any patient that comes to me, they will have the opposite experience of what I had as a patient. And, and when, so when you enter the, the, the medical community, though, the medical community wasn't as supportive as cannabis as you were back then, correct? You know, I, I, I never had any fear. And I know gotcha. this sounds very strange, but as I've journeyed through this cannabis nursing realm, mm -hmm. I really feel like I was born to do this. And so some of my colleagues absolutely have fears. But in my case, I just followed my heart. I followed the patient's needs. Mm -hmm. um, I used the knowledge that I had to help expand the program. I was the first to create smokeless products, so mm -hmm. topicals and edibles for patients in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really important to me because I had so many patients that needed those products, but they weren't available at the time. Gotcha. And you got the, those patients into, no, I'm sorry, when did New, New Mexico Passed, yeah, you passed your bill a long, long time ago. Yeah, 07. 2007, but it took about two years for the regulatory system to mm -hmm. go into play. So mm -hmm. by 2009, I was a medical director for a dispensary, which gave me the ability to actually um, provide medicine for patients. And gotcha. so we didn't have dispensaries at that time. Mm -hmm. So I was home delivering, which was interesting as a home health nurse. Sure. It was just part of my job. So I would show up to my cannabis patients' homes with their cannabis and my scrubs on. Mm -hmm. And I remember my patients would say, I never thought I would live to see the day that <laughs> I had my cannabis delivered by a nurse. Sure. No, that's great. <laughs> that's incredible. And so over that period of time, you've, I've, I clearly work with not just patients who are suffering from PTSD, but you work with patients in a broad spectrum, right? I did. And actually, my first patient that um, really gave me the uh, confidence to be able to do what I was doing even within the home health setting was I received um, a, a chart for a patient who had MS and he was a young man and this was very debilitating for him mm -hmm. and he was angry about it and he was in a chair and required a lot of care. And so they called me in and when I got his chart, I opened up his medication record to do some medication teaching. And the first uh medicine that was at the top of his record was cannabis in all capital letters. Huh. And so I said, well, I know what we're going to be talking about today. And I spent that time assessing him and asking him, how are you using cannabis? What is it doing for you? What types of products? And he taught me so much that I was always, he was always one of my first patients that, um, I learned from, and I continue to try and learn from my patients still to this day. Do you track that information and pass that on to anybody? Because, I mean, I would think that you would be an incredible resource for just anecdotal information going in to be looked at, you know, from a clinical standpoint, you know, or just a, a investigational trial standpoint. It's a good point. Um, 
I, I often say that I was born a healer and trained as a nurse. And when I moved into cannabis nursing, the first thing I ditched was spending time on documentation. And so um, a lot of that information are stories in my mind that I try to relay those stories, but I never have written those things down for a scientific evidence or anything. Well, that. now you founded this, this organization, the Cannabis Nurses Network. So I guess you have like-minded people working with you now. Yes. But I would think that you guys would again, I mean, just as a, just as a, I'm just throwing it out there, not as a recommendation, but just as a, something to offer. I mean, maybe you should consider getting that whole nurses cannabis network, you know, the cannabis nurses network to start recording. You don't have to record the patient's name, you know, patient yeah. one, patient one B, patient one BC, whatever. Exactly. You know, label them any way you want, but they are using XYZ you know, type of plant, they're using type of extract, they're doing this each day, and this is the results of what they do. If you started, you know, actually compiling some of that data, I think that that would be the kind of data that, you know, it, would it be a clinical trial? No, but it could be information used for an observational trial. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. In hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, back but, in I mean, those days, we now, were... let's do it now. Forget <laughs> about the back the back days. Let's start doing it now because yeah. I think you got how many nurses do you have in the organization? So we have over three thousand nurses. Oh my goodness! Come on, are you kidding me? And they're all doing amazing work. And so on my end, I actually realized in about two thousand fifteen that I was going to be able to reach more patients by educating more nurses. Right. And that's really where my focus has been. And so a lot of our nurses are doing some incredible work. Many of them are involved in research. I actually sit on a, um, a research committee right now for research being done on creating a tool that's appropriate in diagnosing cannabis use disorder. Well, um, you know, but I, I would venture to say that I, I guarantee you if at your next meeting for your organization – you ought to just say, ladies, here, I, or ladies, man, whoever, here, I have this this SOP, and here's my new SOP, and I want you all to pass this around and make sure that from this point on, every single patient that you work with that is utilizing cannabis, let them know that they have no fear of being, you know, backtracked. We'll keep their names, their real names, you know, anonymous, but we'll start recording data about what they're doing, types of cannabis that they're using how it's impacting them, symptoms that they have mitigated and those kinds of things so that we can start compiling that 3,000. You figure how many patients each one of your nurses has, two or three or well, more? It's, it's interesting because nurses do all types of different things. So some nurses are working as educators. Some are working as consultants for patients. Some are working within the industry. Some are preparing mm -hmm. medicines. So it, it's really a broad spectrum of um, activities that nurses are involved in. But you probably have reached to, you know, thousands of patients and thousands of patients worth of data is worth something in this Absolutely. industry, especially right now. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think that, uh, you know, it, it would help better inform some of the providers of the product, especially, you know, some of the dispensaries that are bringing, letting people know that some of the stuff maybe we shouldn't be selling, but some of the stuff we should be. Yeah, great point. Great, great. point. Absolutely. Now, talk a little bit to me about, you know, just in the settings, is most of this at-home settings that you work with patients with cannabis, or do they go in the office? How do you do this? Or do you meet them at a dispensary? So as far as I'm, as my work with patients, um, I don't work directly with patients. I Anymore? actually okay. run the Cannabis Nurses Network, which is really nurse focused. And so when I, and I guess I'll backtrack when I say I don't work with patients, mm -hmm. um, because our nurses right now are coming to our network at a rapid rate 
because they're leaving healthcare and they're seeking something for themselves. Right. Nurses are hurting right now. Well, you ain't kidding. I mean, I uh-huh. think this is one of the things that, that we've failed to understand, especially over the course of this pandemic and the fact that, you know, uh, the pandemic, we, we focused in on that by itself, not recognizing that everything else in the society kind of doubled also. Diabetes, type 1, diabetes 2, diabetes, uh, uh, mental health issues, whether they be COVID-related or not. We do recognize that somewhere around 55 to 60% of all first responders are feeling some symptoms of some sort of PTSD from having experienced what they just went through with COVID. Yes. You know, working in hospitals, watching people die and suffer, working in places and being frustrated where they weren't given the amount of, uh, you know, PPE that they needed, protective gear for themselves. They've watched some of their lone, you know, uh, uh, peers actually succumb to COVID. And, you know, I mean, it just goes on and on. And we were already in a mental health crisis before COVID. We were already in, I mean, I know this was back, I was doing speeches back in two, hmm, in 2008, 9, and 10, where I was literally almost like not being a doomsday sayer, but actually trying to point out that in spite of and not even thinking, considering that something like COVID was coming down the pike, the National Nurses Organization put out, this is back, I'm telling you, as early as 19, no, as early as 2007, 8, 9, the National Nurses Association and the uh, the uh, the same equivalent association for doctors were already projecting that in 2020 to 2022, 2022 to 2025, we were going to be somewhere around 300 to 400,000 nurses short in America. You're right. Because uh, nurses were aging out. The federal government stopped funding programs that actually supported, you know, educating nurses. And so we are now seeing that actually come to fruition faster than we thought it was because now COVID has pushed so many of you out of the industry. We are going to be a nation faced in the next year around 400,000 nurses short. And, you know, we could be around 300,000 doctors short. You got to remember, folks, that for the last 10 years, you've had kids sitting in those back rooms who've been more interested in being Internet stars than they have been going to school. More interested in doing things to line their pockets than helping to take care of other people. And those who are out there doing it are sick and tired of being left on their own. And some of them are saying, enough, I've done. I've done my part. I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm not doing it for 25. So as they retire, you got to remember, what was it about? Mm, let's go back to, I think it was before Clinton was president, there were all these people talking about, well, you know, we're going to keep it on Democrats and they're going to try to turn us into socialized medicine, medicine and you're going to go into a doctor's office and you're going to have to wait. Well, guess what? It didn't have nothing to do with Clinton. It had to do with the way we respect nurses and doctors. We respect education that America will be doling out medical care from this point forth. You're going to go in a hospital and wait in an emergency room for five, six, seven hours because there's no bed. There's no one to check on you because they're not trained because they're not going to school to do so. Sorry, I'm on my little horse, but you know, I think this is more, this is the kind of information that, that you guys that are in the trenches need to make sure people start to understand number one. And number two, how dare we pay you as little as we do? 
So I'm going to say that straight up also. I mean, you know, those who take care of the least of us, who are the least of us to begin with, get the least remuneration for what you do. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million-dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. Well, and, and, you know, nurses care where I, it was President Obama said nurses are the heartbeat of health care. No question. And when your heart stops beating, big things happen. And, and so I'm afraid that to be that bad news bearer to say that nurses are, are stating that this time that they spent in COVID, they're calling it their tours of duty. Absolutely. And, and they're waking up in the middle of the night screaming with terror from the nightmares. And you know, I, I, I was looking we're at not trained for that. No, I was reading some information, you know, this is, uh, just a little while ago. And I think there was a, a recent study said that, you know, of all the people who, you know, we, we look at the big number and we should look at the big number. A million people died. You know what I mean? But there were probably six, seven million people in hospital. I don't know what the that real national number was. You want to look at Google that while I'm talking? If you could just see how many people actually got hospitalized for COVID. We'll see if we can pull up a number because when you stop and you think about this, let's say the number, I'm just going to make this up. Let's say the number was 5 million people or maybe even 6 million people were actually hospitalized. I think the number was way greater than that. So, but let me just use that for right now. We're waiting for an answer. So, so let's say it was 6 million people. And out of those 6 million people that went to the hospital, and those are the ones that survived, mm-hmm. we know that Somewhere between 60 and 70% of them who spent more than two days in the hospital all are suffering of some, from some form of PTSD right now. And stop and think about it. Why would they be suffering from PTSD? Because they had people walking in the door asking them how you feel that look like aliens. They had more crap all over their body. They had nasty, Darth Vader, how do you feel? You know, I mean, this is what these people were actually looking at. And then a lot of them stuck in little rooms and, and couldn't say hello to their wife who's outside the door. They could barely see the eye peeking through the window. You know, nobody could come and see them. And they thought they were going to die. There were times they felt so bad that they thought they were literally going to die. They were Some of them back, blacked out, didn't wake up. I remember, you know, I, I'll tell you a very funny story. Not a funny story, but, you know, um, four and a half years ago, I had a uh, severe hemorrhagic stroke. One that was so severe that the type of stroke that I had, normally 50% of the people who have it die. They don't survive it. They don't survive it for the first hour. I literally, I don't even remember my, the three days of life while I was in that emergency room and in that critical care unit. I don't remember what happened. I, I remember waking and going to sleep. I remember the fact that my wife was there and, and I remember every time I woke up, she said, I love you. And every time I went to sleep, she said, I love you. So that was really what was kind of keeping me going. But Anything else that took place, I ba- I barely remember. I don't remember nurses coming in, and they were coming in and out the whole time. I didn't think I ate for three days, and I I remember just 
you know, now I'm a little bit of a different kind of a person, but because I was not going to be denied, you were I wasn't going out this way. Once I realized that I wasn't going to die, then I really wasn't going to go out this way, period. Yes. So, you know, I started fighting as hard as I could to gain as much of my faculties back as quickly as I could. And, and you know, I got up when they told me, don't get up. I was getting up anyway because I was, damn it, I was going to make these legs work. And, but I remember just this, you know, the, the lowest basis feeling of fear. I was afraid. I remember those three days that I couldn't, I couldn't really understand what was going on. I literally, I understood I was afraid. And I was thinking to myself, I'm not going out like this. You're not. And that was, that was my fear. I kept saying that to myself. You're not dying. Stop it. You ain't going to die. Stop it. And I remember those thoughts. But you know, to, to, to tell you what six hours looked like at a time, I can't tell you that. I don't remember who came in and out. Now, that was from a stroke. People who were suffering from COVID was like a stroke on steroids. I mean, every part of their body hurt. Every part of their being hurt. They literally couldn't maintain conscious thought. Couldn't thread two, three thoughts together. And then six, seven days later, they're, oh, all of a sudden, you know, the intubation stops and they're able to breathe a little bit more and they're starting to come back and they're, you know, so happy that they're alive. But those six days of being in the dark was trauma. And so now we're living with a country where if you think about it, 65% of 6 million people, we're talking about close to 4.5 million people walking around traumatized. And there ain't nobody out here to help them. And those are the patients. I think about the nurses and the doctors who had to suffer through losing that one and losing that one and losing that one and losing that one, losing five, six, seven people a day. Yeah. That, you know, you guys, your heart goes out to them. And a lot of people don't understand that, you know, you when, when Obama said you were the heartbeat, you were the heart of, you know, for some of these people, you were the only person that they, and you knew you were the only person that they had. And so when and they then, suffered and they passed, you suffered. And that's why so many of you are getting out of the business right now. How do we make Americans wake up? I and mean, first off, we got to get another generation to understand that it's okay to serve other people. To not serve in the, the sense of serving, I'm talking about service to other people. And it's okay to want to have a life that way as long as you're remunerated. But it's going to be hard for us to fill in this gap of 300,000, 400,000 nurses short. And as they educate them, it's really important. And this is a lot of the work we do as a network advocating that the endocannabinoid system is part of that education. Um, I feel like when I learned about the endocannabinoid system that I was ripped off in nursing school because they only taught me 11 of the 12 human body systems. And right. so when I learned about that system, and now we actually have national nursing guidelines for medical marijuana. That's incredible. I'm so happy you do because I mean, well, now I would hope that all the nursing schools started teaching it. And they're, they're not. So these guidelines were published in 2018, Montel. And we still, as a network, are doing this work to try and get our state boards of nursing to adopt these guidelines that were published by the National Councils of State Boards of Nursing. And so we need help getting this message out so that um, what we're finding is that a lot of medical professionals or nursing schools, there's such stigma around the plant cannabis 
that it repels them from even opening their eyes to the science of the endocannabinoid system. I find that so repulsively Mm -hmm. ignorant, I just can't tell you, especially in an organization. And and nurses, you're not alone because the doctors are just as bad. Doctors out here who claim to believe in science that they try to shove down my throat when you walk in their office and they act like, you know, all those plaques on my wall mean something. Those plaques on your wall don't mean a damn thing if you're not willing to re-educate yourself and learn about a new system That's to it. me. And, you know, it's 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 ridiculous that, you know, the medical established medical community would have the audacity to fight something that's been around for as long as it has been around. But the only reason why I think they fight it is because of just pure and simple ego and the fact that they know that they were wrong. Yeah. You know? And so admit you're wrong, move on, get the education, study. I mean, I say this all the time. It's like, you know, what is it, 25, 20 years ago, 20, no, maybe 30 years, no, longer than that, damn, I'm not old. All right, so 40 years ago when, you know, the pharmaceutical industry produced a drug, what's it called, thalidomide, Mm -hmm. that created more, you know, uh, uh, a birth defect than any other drug they ever seen before. And so we did the right thing. We got that drug out of the marketplace. But guess what? In the last five years, somebody realized, holy crap, did you know what thalidomide does? I think it's for heart disease. It's an amazing drug for certain types of heart disease. So it's back. You do know that, right? I, I was not aware of it's that. It's back. So it's back because we found education. out we found out benefits of a drug. So you were you were right in some ways that it needed to be removed from the marketplace, but you were wrong when you vilified it and said it had no value. True. This is a drug that you've been wrong about since day one. Way back, you knew that it had value. You go and look at any newspaper in America in 1894, 1895, 1901, 1902. Go back to the classifieds. There are thousands, hundreds of different tinctures and, and, right. and formulations built and centered on cannabis. It was part of our medical pharmacopoeia until, until 1937. 37. And, and of ag- course, they And took- against the American Medical Associations, they said, please, we, you can't make this medicine illegal. We use it in thousands of preparations. And they made it illegal. And they yeah. made it illegal not because it was a medicine. They made it illegal because of the Marijuana Tax Act, folks. Understand that. Yes, sir. One million hospitalized? So we had a million hospitalized and a million died? Holy moly, that means it was two million of them passed through a hospital. So if we've got a million survivors and we're going to say that 65 to 70% of them are suffering right now from some form of PTSD, that means 650,000 people walking around here that still need help. And we don't have enough nurses out here to help them. Well, and, and the thing I love about cannabis is that, you know, Dr. Uva Blushing has been quoted as saying, cannabis is a therapist you can carry in your pocket. There you go. And I really love that saying because it's very true. A lot of times, you know, because our healthcare system is broken, because our mental health system is fractured, we need to be able to empower ourselves. And I love this plant because it's gentle. People can use it in ways that work for them. And it's, as Dr. Blushing says, it's a therapist you can carry in your pocket. And uh, by the way, folks, not one person on this planet has ever been acknowledged to have died from cannabis. There has been some one single associated death that had more to do with the underlying medical problems that the person who died had 
and they probably consumed some cannabis that we don't still know whether that today, whether that they truly do, that was mold laden. And so it wasn't the cannabis that hurt them. It was the mold and probably the way it was processed that did that. I don't know. I, I don't know all the facts on that case, but I do know that there was one case where I think it was here in Southern California. They attempted to say that this person died from using cannabis. They didn't die from using cannabis. They used from died died from using some bad cannabis maybe and maybe but i still don't know if the, that ever was decided so in the history of man we don't have any reports of anybody ever dying from thc yeah it's non-toxic and it doesn't Correct. act on your system like morphine or opiates do that will stop your respiration and so cannabis can be used as a wonderful adjunct to help people get off of even opioids, Correct. or reduce the amount that they need for pain management. It has been shown to be an exit drug Absolutely. for opioid addiction. And in almost every state that has a medical cannabis program, we have seen cannabis, seen opioid, alcohol, and even tobacco use go down in ages 21 to 25 and across the board. So we do know if, in fact, we spoke about cannabis a little bit more than we do and we made sure that it was made more available we could end the scourge but i mean recently we just heard well last week i think we had more people have died from opioids and 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 overdoses in this country fentanyl opioids than in the past and we're not even talking about that right now it's almost as if you know the pandemic stopped us from talking about opioid addiction but it continued on throughout the pandemic Absolutely. and it's continued on to the day Crazy. So, I mean, I know, again, the nurses that are working in this cannabis nurse network, is that only in New Mexico or is that across well, the country? So, the, actually, the Cannabis Nurses Network is global. We are represented by nine countries. Oh, wow, uh, wow, We have goodness. nurses all over the world that are working to educate. And, and really, our, our mission is to empower nurses through education, opportunity, recognition, and advocacy. And everything we do is built upon those four pillars. And we're really making a lot of headway in revolutionizing healthcare as we know it by educating and empowering nurses and them in turn helping to educate and empower patients. Absolutely. Well, I know that your work has been instrumental in affecting the ability or not the ability, but affecting hospitals and making them change their attitudes about even consuming cannabis products in hospital, right? I don't know if it's changed their attitudes, Montel. Oh, right. But, <laughs> but we cha definitely changed the law. And now hospitals and inpatient care facilities in California are mandated to allow terminally ill patients to use their cannabis products while they are staying in, in, in patients. And there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to use it while they're... I, I will tell you, and I, I, I won't name the name of the hospital... But I was taken to one of the top hospitals in New York when I had my stroke. And, um, I, you know, when I, again, after that third day and I started coming back to life, I remember saying to uh, the lead neurologist that was taking care of me, I said, look, you know, I don't know if you understand this or not, but I've done a lot of research. I have my own CBD line and products that are out there. And from my perspective, I know that CBD and, and minor cannabinoids have a very efficacious neurological effect, especially when it comes to ischemia, but also I think it would probably work well to lessening some of the nerve damage that I have. Is there any way that I can go use my CBD? And they said, mm, well, you know, we really can't authorize you to do that. I said, whether you authorize me to do it or not, homie, 
I'm going to do it. I'm doing and they it. said, well, <laughs> then if you plan on doing it here, let me see what it is you're going to do. And I literally ended up giving my, it was a product that I actually was formulating myself. I gave the product to the lead pharmacist in that hospital. The doctor said, let us take a look at it first to make sure it's not going to be, you know, interact poorly with what we're giving you. I said, yeah, go ahead, take a look at it. Take it down to your lab. They took it apart, came back and said, you can do this all you want, but please don't take it out in the hallways. You can just do it in your room and you'll be fine. I said, well, now that we're talking about the CBD, I also have this little vape pen How right here. This one? And I have this little vape pen right here. He said, you know what, uh, Mr. Williams, we're not going to tell you what to do. Let me take that downstairs. They took it apart. They looked at my vape pen. They said, well, you know what, as long as you do that in your room by yourself, and don't let it, don't do it in front of the other patients. Go right ahead. And I really believe that it, along with some other things I've worked on, I've worked on a, a medical device. It's a portable neuromodulation device that works through the cranial nerves or your tongue that attach to your brain. I think that it was a combination of those two things that literally brought me back as quickly as I came back. Because I, I was told that literally I was not supposed to have survived the stroke and I shouldn't have survived the stroke without any impediments and you know i then you know the, the first day i couldn't i well, first three days i really i remember going to the bathroom once in those first three days and my wife having to literally hold me she slept in the bed beside me for like 27 days and um i remember she had to like hold me up to go to the bathroom but then like on day four i remember the second i started using my cbd and i started using my cannabis and i started using my pons device by the end of that day, I literally was able to make it to the bathroom with a walker by myself. And then the next day, I was literally walking up and down the hallway with a walker. And then the next day, I was walking without a walker. So, um, and I was doing, you know, the rehab that I was doing at the hospital went very, very quickly. I left the hospital after. I was in the hospital for almost 30 days. Mm-hmm. Left the hospital, went to a, a rehab, rehab center in my wife's hometown, and for six weeks went to rehab. But, you know, I entered that rehab center, and they had basically graded me as a, you know, like a, at a 71, 72, I walked out of there at a 98 mm-hmm. and they were shocked at how quickly I recovered. And I didn't, I will test the fact that from day four on, I did not miss, you know, I was putting probably somewhere, what was our, our capsules, our CB capsules, were, were they, they were, they were 40 milligrams each, 50 milligrams each. They were 50. So I was, I was probably consuming, no less than 300 milligrams a day, every day. Well, you and needed it. I absolutely. Mean, we, we know even from the U.S. patent that Correct. cannabinoids are neuroprotectants, antioxidants. Correct. You know, and, and you said it, you, you threw it out there. Yeah, from the U.S. patent, folks, because the U.S. government patented cannabis back in 2003. Uh, you know, and you can look it up as patent number 6630507. You, you can go it. look it up. Yeah. And when you look it up, it will tell you and read the abstract that tells you exactly what our government believe cannabis did 20 years ago. Yeah. Yet it's still scheduled. Yet they one. still, yet they still have the nerve to say, well, when there's more research than I might be able to support it. Like, Shut the, you know what up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. We're, we're done. We're done eating that line of goods. <laughs> well, you know, you, you, you talked <laughs> about the better. fact that you worked really hard at getting a law passed. It was Ryan's law in California. It was the yes, first sir. state that did it. Tell me a little bit about Ryan. Who was Ryan and, and why did you work so hard to get this done? So Ryan was known as the autism whisperer. He worked with children with autism. He lived in Washington and his father, Jim Bartell was a business. Um, 
we were clients of his and he was involved in government relations. And I remember one day my husband and I went into Jim's office and there was something different about his countenance. And he said, we just found out that my son Ryan has pancreatic cancer <sighs> and he was hospitalized. And we immediately activated our network. We got nurses in that area. We got medicine from that area and we got them to get the medicine to him at the hospital. And the hospital said, no, you cannot use cannabis here. And then what's really crazy is we've now just found out again in February of this year, there was a study that was done in Australia that has now proved that cannabidiol, CBD, and even THC in a combination with some other minor cannabinoids, acid form, CBDA, CBDG, those three, those four together seem to be impacting pancreatic cancer like no other drug has, has ever impacted it to date. It literally slows down its replication. So you were doing the right thing. Absolutely. And so when the hospital refused him, they instead were giving him a lot of fentanyl. And so mm. he begged his dad. He said, please, dad, get, get me off of this. I, I don't want to, I don't want to go out like this to right. use your words. Mm -hmm. And so his father found another hospital in Washington that would allow him to utilize the cannabis. And he spent the last few weeks of his life with his family, alert, laughing, mm. talking to his friends, texting, being on the phone. It was night and day. And so we really talk about cannabis at the end of life as quality of life. And so when, after Ryan had died, his dad, Jim, who lives in California, he, he used to be, he was the former mayor of Santee down here in San Diego. And he came to my husband, who's a, who's a lawyer, and he said, I really want to honor Ryan and I want to pass a law here in California so that this doesn't ever happen to somebody else. Wow. And it took us four years. It was vetoed the first time around because the hospital association was afraid that they would lose their Medicaid, Medicare funding if they allowed this activity in the hospital. So our second time around with the new bill, we, we had uh, SB 305 was the first one. It was vetoed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. SB 311 was the second bill, and we actually received a letter from the Medicare, Medicaid reimbursement folks who said, not only have we never refused funds to any facility for them, their patients using cannabis there, we have no intention to do so. And we had this in writing. Mm -hmm. So it was really our silver bullet, so to speak, to get us um, to have this law passed because when Governor Newsom vetoed it, he stated that this was the issue. Right. So we rectified that. And I'm, I'm really happy that um, patients now, as of January 1st of 2022, now have access to use cannabis in hospitals. And you're working to make sure that this gets extended to other states? We are. So we're working heavily in Oregon and Washington right now. And we're also expanding to 14 other states. Um, we we want to spread this across the nation. It would love we'd love to be able to do it federally, but we realize that state sure. by state is the way to go. Sure. And the beautiful thing is it's all nurse led. So we host our advocacy meetings every month and our nurses are building teams, making relationships with our legislators. And it's a really beautiful way to have our nurses advocating for something that we truly believe in. And if there are nurses out across the country that are listening to us right now and they want to get more information, where would they go? Come and see us at CannabisNursesNetwork.com. Uh, we would, we'd love to have you join us or, you know, utilize our website and our information to advance your cannabis nursing journey and, your, and increase your knowledge. If there was one thing you wanted to say to medical professionals across the country when it comes to cannabis, what would it be? 
Don't be afraid of the stigma of the plant. Spend your time learning about the endocannabinoid system. There are so many ways that we can tonify, boost, and enhance this system with and without cannabis that you should not use this plant as an excuse to remain ignorant about our most important um, human body system. Absolutely. And when we've now found out that it is probably one of the, if not the most important neurological system in our body because it seems to affect every single aspect of human life. Yeah, I, I like to say it's the largest receptor signaling system in the human body responsible for balance and homeostasis of all of our other body systems. Had I known about the endocannabinoid system from the beginning, I would have immediately always cared for people's endocannabinoid systems first. Mm -hmm. That's why we see cannabis working for so many symptoms because that is really the root system that we should be caring for. And we're finding, still finding out more and more and more every single day. I mean, I think when we first, uh, you know, we go back in the 1980s, you know, Dr. Rafael Mashulam and others around the world had discovered receptors that are part of that. And we now realize that almost every single cell in our body has a receptor. We originally thought there was only two endocannabinoids. Now we know that there's close to 100. So if there's a close to 100, there must be close to 100 different receptors in our body. So you're absolutely right when you say it is probably the most important neurological system in the body. And we need to pay homage to it and be educated about it if we're going to call ourselves doctors or nurses. Yeah, we, we take an oath to run an evidence-based practice. And it's such an exciting system that the more that I've learned about it, the more I realize I don't know. And so it's very right. fun to come and be part of this revolution. I'm going to tell you, you just said, the more you know about it, the more you realize you don't know, because I swear to you, I sat around thinking, oh, I read about the endocannabinoid, I'm patting myself on the back. I read about the endocannabinoid system years ago, and I knew about it. And then I went around for two or three years thinking that there was only really two endocannabinoids. And then, you know, in about six months ago, I read an article and went, wait a minute, stupid. You talking a bunch of trash that you don't know. There's close to a hundred endocannabinoids. We haven't even identified them all yet. And we haven't if we haven't identified what they are, we haven't identified what their receptors are. And so therefore there's plenty more. We've been running around saying there's C B one and C B two, but there's probably C B one hundred once we finally get there. So uh, it's 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 a very interesting science. It's something that, you know, I I I look at, at knowledge as something like almost like a game. I, I The more and more I can learn, the more and more I'll get closer to winning. So, you know, I'm trying my best to learn as much as I can. And I'm hoping that, you know, more doctors, more nurses take this in the attitude that you have and your group has to educate yourselves and educate more so that we can finally get to a part that we have human homeostasis. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. We're, we believe that if people can understand this system, it's going to influence the way that we care for people in the future. Absolutely. No, it sounds about Heather Manis, I got to say thank you so much for being a part of the show. Any, excuse me, anytime you want to come back, let us know. We'd love to have you back as a guest for sure. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And again, give out that website one more time. CannabisNursesNetwork.com. Dot com. Okay. Make sure you go up there and get some information if you think you could use it or pass it on to your nurse to see if she can get some information because she knows she can use it. I want to thank you all for being a part of the show. Make sure you tune in to the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. 
To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.